Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean Tobias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. I'd like to welcome Jamie Schmidt, the founder and former CEO of Schmidt's Naturals, the natural personal care brand that scaled from her kitchen to a nine-figure acquisition with Unilever seven years later. Jamie grew Schmidt's Naturals from the humble beginnings of local Oregon flea markets into a household name lining the shelves of 30,000 retailers in over 30 countries. You know, um, Jamie, whenever I pick up one of your products, I see ingredients that are a little foreign to these mass market brands like um, charcoal, magnesium, rose, vanilla, lavender, sage. Yummy, actually. Um, so I'm curious, you know, 10 years ago, natural deodorant didn't really work. I mean, it didn't really smell good at all. And uh, I'm very curious, how did you crack the code? You know, how did you turn this business into a pretty powerful brand? Welcome, by the way. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Dean. It's fun to be here. You know, I think what really where the magic was is that I was solving a problem for myself. Um, I, was, uh, I was pregnant at the time, so I was paying closer attention to the products I was using on my skin. Um, I also had a personal frustration with the deodorants that were on the market. And so I thought, you know what, let's, let's try to make one. Um, that was one of many things I was making at the time. You know, I, I was living in Portland, Oregon. It's the most creative city in the in the country, potentially in the world. Uh, you know, everybody's an artist, creator, maker, um, and so I just loved that culture and jumped right in, making all sorts of things. And you know, one of them being personal care products. Um, so you know, when the opportunity came to create my own deodorant, it, it just made sense. And so I jumped in, um, started doing some research on different ingredients and how they you know impact um, the body chemistry. And came up with something that that worked really well, and you know, surprisingly, um, just as good, if not better, than you know what what was on the market at the time. And um, looking back on it, it's it's pretty crazy to think that you know I was in this <laughs> tiny little house in, exactly. in Portland, right? Like this non-sophisticated lab, which was basically my you know my kitchen stovetop. Um, cracked the code, cracked the code on something that that people were excited to use. You cracked that amazing code. So if I read the ingredients, I won't tell you what brand I just used, but. I, I'm wondering, is my deodorant depressing me? I don't know. It's like some of the ingredients in these products um, are still, you know, kind of sketchy, quite frankly. But uh, so we can kind of jump into that later. You know, mass market brands are still struggling with this category across the board and not just your category. And, but you really led the movement. This is a totally different era now, you know, kind of bringing brands, products like this to life. And um, now corporates can't seem to get enough of this. They're stumbling over themselves to buy companies like yours and, um, you know, acquisitions both in health and beauty and wellness, food and beverage. I'm involved in a private equity group that is uh, funding a lot of the really cool full food uh, emerging companies, not just the startups. And uh, and it's interesting now is they're all, um, maybe you can take credit for this too. They're, they're, a lot of them are getting tech valuations, which is, you know, I'm used to, but the uh, health, beauty, wellness, uh, food, beverage industry, they weren't used to that. Uh, they don't seem to mind though. Yeah, you know, I it, it is pretty nuts to look back and think that, you know, a company that started in a, a tiny kitchen would caught the attention of somebody like Unilever. Um, but, you know, they're for good reason, right? Um, I think, you know, one of, one of the... I think secrets to, to Schmidt's success was that we really kept an open mind to um, who our customer was, right? So when you think naturals, you might think niche, you think a certain type of user, 
Um, but for exactly. me, I saw opportunity yep. beyond that, right? Like I thought people um, in the middle of America and you know, people who had otherwise didn't have access or exposure to, to natural, healthy products, you know, regularly deserved it, right? And so that was always at the forefront of my thinking as I scaled. Um, so that meant tapping into distribution channels, um, you know, with retailers like Walmart or Costco, where other naturals, um, particularly those, you know, kind of coming up behind me, wanted nothing to do with those channels. Um, and so in doing that, you know, we started to really make natural more normal. And, I, you know, there's so much more work to be done. I read a stat the other day that less than 10% of people still were using natural uh, personal care products. Um, so there's a huge, you know, untapped customer base, which is great. Um, but it's grown so much since when I started, you know, 10 years ago. Right. And back then it really was fringe. And 10 years before that, it was like, you know, the what did they used to make fun of granola crunchers and you know it was a niche inside a niche and it's becoming mass market but yeah still under 10 percent um such an awareness uh about things that are good and healthy for you both you know inside on top of your body like hair products and and things you eat is um it seems to be continuing to trend up maybe talk about that in a bit but the um back to the entrepreneurs i mean it seems like many of them should thank you for kind of paving the way for you really hacked yourself into this mass market scaling funding. And so, so many of them are looking for that now. How do I scale? How do I get great funding? How do I get liquidity? And how do I, you know, how do, how would I get a great exit? Like, uh, like Jamie and um, many of them that I talked to, you know, you're right. They don't necessarily want to go the mass market we're out there's like well we really don't want to be in retail you know in, in walmart we're you know we're more of a you know target kind of brand or we're more this or more that so should all brands look for mass scale brands that are you know let's call them the indie brands that are, right. have big potential well i think there's also like this group of brands who are strictly d2c right they want nothing to do with retail and i think nothing. yeah yeah and I, it makes sense for certain products you know there's there's no disputing that um but when it comes down to like a consumable high volume product i just to me it's just obvious <clears throat> that there's big opportunity in retail um i would never you know force some founder to sell in a channel that just really didn't feel right to them you know that's personal choice um but if you know if if you're really trying to like you said hack your way i like that i'm gonna use that more often um i think you know really keeping an open mind to who your customer is 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 key. I think it all yeah. comes down to to reaching more people, right? And with a product like deodorant, for example, you know, most people use it. Um, so there's big opportunity to tap into new user groups. Yep. Yeah, exactly. What was your, um, historically, what was your first break? How did you get out of the um, local Oregon, um, yeah. you know, the how you go from flea market to mass market? That's a better way to ask the question. Yeah, all sorts of breaks, I think. Um, you know, number one, um, it was actually farmer's markets, which I think sometimes... The Sorry. Flea, yeah, you know, there were a couple of crap shows and things too, but um, I think that, you know, enabled me to really connect with um, customers who were very discerning with ingredients and, you know, brand loyalty and things. And so that, that helped, you know, having those conversations. I had these built-in focus groups right in front of me every week. Mm -hmm. um, and in doing that, you know, People started to talk about the product or they would come back the next week for more. Retailers were hearing about it because customers were going into the stores and asking, you know, can I find that, that Schmidt's deodorant here? And retailers were curious, what is this, right? Um, and so just started, word of mouth just kept spreading. Um, and then, you know, little breaks came along the way. I had a pretty early feature on TV, um, mm -hmm. which sort of came out of nowhere. And then that enabled me, it was on Fox, so the viewership was just very expansive. And so that enabled me to reach you know, a whole new community of people who were 
really interested in this idea of using something, you know, healthier on their armpits. Um, and then from there, you know, just new opportunities. I really kept an open mind to everything. My philosophy along the way was always, you know, say yes and then figure it out. Um, and so in doing that, it just kept opening more doors for me. Yeah, I bet. Very remarkable journey. Um, the brand name, is is that your maiden name or is that your husband's? That's my maiden name, yeah. I'm it sure. is. Yep. Right. And a lot of my friends. It's powerful. It's got right. some authority to it. Yeah, you know, in the beginning, I was like, this is just a kind of an ugly, weird name. To you. But I, I was using it. Yeah, as I could a, never use my last name for products. Yeah. <laughs> never know. Too many syllables. Yeah, <laughs> right. The one syllable helps. But um, my friends called me Schmidt in high school. You know, I started started to embrace it. And I uh, thought, and then I like, as the company got bigger, you know, again, it was sort of a placeholder at first, but then as the company got bigger, I thought, you know what, it's kind of too late to change it. And I like it, right? And it has solidified the legacy, which is I really like it. Cool. Yeah. It's easy to remember. Right. <laughs> no, it's good. I guess I could call, I guess I could have a company called Dean's. Dean's, there you There's go. Dean's. Well, I said Dean's deodorant. Yeah, there you go. Right. <laughs> I don't want to use I don't want to use Dean's deodorant. Give me out. No. Um, so so grew it to this um, amazing, remarkable um, you know, brand launch pad. Got it in, you know, probably not the uh, thousands of stores it's in now. I probably didn't do that on your own, but uh, scaled it up quite nicely. So how did you feel about releasing your company into a big corporate giant like uh, Unilever, you know, sixty billion dollars in revenue over I think 400 brands the last time I, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. How did that feel to like, Oh, all sorts of feelings. You know, I will say when I started the company, I never had plans to sell it. It just wasn't in my thinking. I just enjoyed what I was doing and never looked too far ahead. Um, so when the opportunity came, it was, you know, for first just shocking, right? Like, wow. To know that my brand was being watched. I found out later after the acquisition that Unilever had been watching Schmitz for like three years. So that, right. that, that was kind of fun. Um, yeah, they have a lot I, of scouts. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it was pretty incredible to think that my brand could join this family and just be, you know, secure in a lot of ways that it wasn't before. Of course, there's risks. You know, you you risk slowing your innovation and you're joining this family of brands. So how do you fit in? You know, they, I wasn't the first deodorant in the Unilever family. And so what did that mean in terms of where they were going to, you know, kind of squeeze me in and in their strategy? Um, but I, you know, I had a lot of conversations with them. In fact, I was talking to other big CPGs, um, as well. So Unilever wasn't the only one on the table. So it gave me some, some choices, which was nice. Um, but I knew from those conversations that they were the right partner. You know, they really valued the things that made Schmidt special. They did not have intentions of going in and shaking up things like our brand team and our product development. And that to me was really important. So I saw that, Schmitz could continue, you know, in the spirit that it had always grown in, um, but also under this, you know, really strong um, parent. Yeah, and I haven't, you know, having having taken companies public myself, and also exited and sold companies to uh, large uh, corporate uh, behemoths. We call them BFSs, big, fat, and slows, <laughs> and try to help them be faster and nimble. And um, but the uh, they had a. They've, they've developed a decent track record, like Dermalogica was on the program mm -hmm. this year and um, totally autonomous, doing its own thing, but, you know, very different kind of channel strategy where you're more core to the uh, got to get it on the shelves. And so you're competing with other other products in their portfolio. But um, what um, 
what uh, types of things do you still do with them? Are you still kind of like the face of the brand or what are you up to? Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm still working with Schmitz. I, you know, that's very important to me to stay connected, but I'm not involved operationally, which means I have a little freedom to do more. Phew. I bet <laughs> yeah. that felt good. Yeah, it did. You know, growing the company as CEO and being responsible for everything, you know, from, from kitchen with zero employees to this, you know, manufacturing space that I had personally built out with a team of 150 employees. There was just so much, you know, constant stress, on me, seven days yeah, a week. Yeah. for sure so um you know i'm very happy to still be connected and engaged um but also have time to do other things so i've since yeah, yeah. and you're very uh, you're very um giving of your time and um you know you wrote a book uh yep. super maker i think it's called yes i did i never imagined being an author of a book um but after the acquisition i realized i you know my journey was really interesting and, and special and i wanted to put it remarkable in, yeah. in a pretty package right in the book and so my goal in writing it was really to um support other entrepreneurs uh, whether it was through you know just the inspiration behind my my story and how it all started and grew but also with practical tips um, i just wanted people to be able to read it and walk away with like information they could actually use i know a lot of business books are, are really dense and are often told in a way that doesn't it's not backed up by storytelling you know so exactly. for me, i wanted everything to have you know, a nice case to back it up, right? Like I'm telling you to do this because I've been through it and here's, you know, here's what happened for, to me. Yeah. Storytelling and emotion. It's like, it yeah. probably all comes out. Uh, I haven't read it yet. Cause I didn't, you didn't send me my copy yet. Um, <laughs> kidding, kidding. Um, and, uh, did you, have you had a lot of entrepreneurs reach out to you because of that? Saying, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean that even, you know, before the book and but, people reaching out to me was part of the inspiration behind the book. Cause I thought, how can I reach the most people in the most, I guess, concise way, right? Because some people would come to me with really big questions, right? Like, I mean, really huge, like, how do I start a company and grow it and sell it to you, Unilever, right? And, yeah. um, you know, I could jump In reverse that. order would be nice. What? No. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, well, if I put it in book form, you know, I, I can say, read the book, you know, and come back to me afterwards and let me know what, what questions you still have. And so that's been really cool to, I had someone reach out this morning who told me she'd read it three times, you know, and she's always picking up something new. And I had someone tell me yesterday that, you know, it was my fault that she started her business. And I thought that was the best compliment ever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Isn't, isn't one of the themes like do it on your own terms? Is that, uh, is yeah. that possible? Yeah, the title is Supermaker, Crafting Business on Your Own Terms. And what I mean by that is just, you know, taking things at your own speed and um, not always following a playbook. You know, I, I give you a book, right? But I don't consider it necessarily a playbook. Like you have to do this. It's more, here are some suggestions around this particular situation. Um, so when I say on your own terms, I just mean like not obsessing over what other entrepreneurs are doing and just really, you know, building it your own way. Yeah. There's a lot of obsessing going, goes on and comparing and yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes you need to chart your own course on a variety of you know, levels are, are you guys turning it into kind of a media play too? What's going on there? Yeah. So I started, um, the, the company Supermaker with my husband and business partner, Chris, um, Chris, so yes. we, yeah, Chris Cantino, we, it's a, it's a website too, right? So supermaker.com and where we, um, we have a bunch of articles that support, uh, up and coming entrepreneurs. We've done some brand features. Uh, it was particularly helpful during COVID where we would, um, highlight entrepreneurs, tell their stories, and also give resources for dealing with, you know, all the, the stresses that um, have come along with the pandemic. Um, and But also through that, we, we launched um, the Entrepreneurial Dream Project, which is a grant program 
Um, and we did that in response to COVID. You know, how could we be most supportive of people trying to build businesses during this time? Um, starting a company is hard enough, and then you have the pandemic, which just, you know, a lot of people were just like, hell no, I'm not going there. And I wanted to keep the entrepreneurial dream alive. And so we yep. launched this cool, this cool grant program. And it also um, has a mentorship component where we had 50 different mentors um, commit to working with 10 founders who were recipients of the award. And then there was a monetary component as well. Oh, it's good. It's good. Yeah. Good, good plan. Mentorship is so critical, especially. Um, and did that, did that lead to um, you and Chris started a fund? I think it's called Color. Yeah, the two are separate. You know, they, they certainly play off one another, but Color is independent of Supermaker. That came first. That was our first endeavor after the acquisition. Um, and that's, yeah, it's called Color. And we invest in consumer brands. Um, we like to say the things people buy and, and the way they buy them. So um, CPG, but also the tech that supports it. Um, also marketplaces we're really interested in. And, uh, you know, we understood we could really have impact um, on these companies because we've been through it. And we're not just investors with money and opinions. We're investors with experience and, you know, have been operators. So that I think really adds value. Yeah, definitely. And what do you look for there in terms of company, entrepreneur, story, timing, early stage, yeah. later stage? It's not always easy to articulate. You know, I'd say like I guess yeah. our thesis is really, you know, people that are, I, I'm kind of tired of the word disrupting, right? But doing things yes, in a way that's, uh, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's, you know, hasn't been done, hasn't been considered yet for that industry. So innovation is is challenging these days, right? Like there's no, it's really hard to come up with a product that hasn't been made before. So we look for innovation in, you know, the distribution channels or the way that you're talking about the product or, you know, who you think your customer could be. And I think Schmitz is like the perfect example. And it's funny because I never started the company with really laying out this, you know, deep sort of um, vision like that, right? It just it kind of happened. And now looking back, it's like, this makes sense. And this this is what I look for in other brands is, are you looking at distribution in a way that your competitors aren't? Are you talking about your product, you know, in a way that just hasn't been talked about before? Um, and do you have access? Or are you considering customers, you know, outside sort of the norm for this type of product? And so that gets us excited for other brands that we're looking at. Yeah, exactly. And it's part of your story because you you innovated on various tracks. And we teach this at Kellogg with our corporate accelerator programs. Like you can innovate on products, services, ventures. You can do channels, you know, new markets, new customers, not just new products. So that's right. actually um, most funds don't look at it that way. That's a, it's kind of refreshing. Um, I'm one of the founding board members of uh, 1871 in Chicago. So it's one of the largest incubators in the world. And uh, so we have all different types of programs. It might be fun to plug you into, you know, for, um, you know, uh, people of color, um, female, all types of different, uh, they're not just cohorts, they're real, you know, sustainable long-term programs to uh, yeah. to bring targeted uh, companies to market. And I've had, some good, have, had some good companies come out of there like Cameo and a bunch of others that are uh, starting to rock and roll. Nice. Yeah. And one thing I didn't mention about our fund, you know, it's just become such a part of us that I don't always think you to even mention is that, you know, we do rep, we do invest generally in underrepresented founders or, or founders who maybe are just, you know, underestimated. Right. And so underestimated, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a, lot that, of, a lot of us out there. <laughs> right. Yeah. So myself included. And, um, I think, you know, it was at the forefront when we started our fund is like, you know, there are a lot of founders are being overlooked. So let's make that part of our, our mission and our vision. And then 
and then it became trendy, right? You know, with last year's happenings and, uh, you know, around Black Lives Matter and things, all these funds were like, oh, you know, how do we find deal flow that, you know, reaches these these communities? And for us, it was already just so built in. And so, you know, we, by putting that out there in the earliest days, we've been surrounded by these types of founders who are bringing really cool ideas, you know, um, to us. And so it's just a very natural thing now. And so, I just think that's the trick for these for these funds and these VCs who are like, how do I get more deal flow by, you know, women, people of color, or whoever? Um, it's that that's the answer is just like surround yourself by these people and it'll generally come, right? Like it doesn't have to be this sought out thing. Yeah, don't force it. Don't make yeah. it. Um, yeah, it's got to be. I mean, there's some serendipity to it, and there's some natural thing to it, but also you, mm-hmm. you, you know, you need to have a bit of a calling. Uh, a lot of the funds and VCs and private equity groups are starting to get that. So others are, right. it's, about, it's about the money. Um, so let's see, uh, jumping around, uh, I've got Jeff Hoffman coming on the show uh, next week. And he told me that uh, you and he are um, going to be mentors on the Going Public show, which I think, yes. is, uh, I think you guys are taping next week in Miami. What's, what's yep. that all about? Yeah. Are you, are you going public? <laughs> yeah, I'm person taking my personal brand public. There you go. First, it's a personal IPO. That's a whole other conversation. You could do a spec. Uh, we'll talk later. <laughs> well, BitClout. Have you heard of BitClout? Yeah. We won't. We don't need to get into that. But yes, I could take myself public. Everyone's googling that right now. <laughs> yeah. okay. What are um, we talking about? Yeah. Well, this series going public is um, being streamed on Entrepreneur, and it's it's the first of its kind. It's the show that follows founders as they raise money, um, most with the plan to to go public and. It's really cool because the viewers of the show will be able to invest in these brands as they watch in real time through an app. Um, my role on the show is to be a mentor uh, with Jeff. And yeah, I can't wait. The, the companies that have been announced so far are all very, um, very different and diverse you know, from one another. And so that's just going to be really fun for viewers and, and for myself to, to have the you know, opportunity to mentor these brands that are already very successful in their own right, you know? Right, right. Uh, they're, not, so. they're, not, they're like beyond seed stage. And right. those yeah. of you listening in, you know, one of the big trends is the democratization of investing through a variety of different things. Everything from SPACs, which are these companies going public that can invest in anything. That's a fun job. Uh, or um, just open platforms where you can uh, invest in things. You'll even see it advertised on TV now, all types of, uh, there's others competitors to this one that you can just go and fund stuff. So, uh, you know, GoFundMe and a couple of others probably got kicked this off years ago, but it, it seems like it's going mass market. Hopefully people will um, be okay. Uh, yeah, they always have to understand there's tons of risks involved. There's a reason there's right. things called venture capital and private equity. They they shield a lot of the, you know, the, the hits and the misses. Um, anyway, let's, let's keep it positive though. I look forward to seeing you on the show. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one trend. Uh, what other trends have you noticed in, in and around the sector coming out of the 2020 mm-hmm. lockdowns from you know where? Uh, yeah, what are you what are you seeing next? I think it's the way brands are communicating with their audience and with each other. Um, mm-hmm. Audio platforms are obviously becoming very huge. Clubhouse is a great example. Um, I spend quite a bit of time on there, and it's a way you know as an investor, it's great for discovering deal flow. I also really enjoyed it as an opportunity to reach you know my community of um, I guess followers for lack of a better word 
um, through, you know, my husband, Chris, and I will host uh, rooms. We have a club called Club CPG on there. So mm-hmm. we'll host conversations that are industry related, uh, current events sometimes, and um, having um, special guests on there, you know, who have built their own brands. And it's just a great way to, to educate and um, help others, you know, stay engaged and connected. So I think that's definitely trending. I think brands today need to be at least aware of these types of opportunities. And, you know, maybe that means jumping on and hosting a room with your customers or, um, you know, connecting with other entrepreneurs. I think that also is becoming kind of a hot, a hot thing. It's just like less competitive and a little more collaborative. I'm seeing a lot of that, especially in the beauty and personal care worlds. Um, I'm a member of a couple of different organizations with some um, pretty higher level um, leaders in, in that industry. And everybody just comes together and talks about their problems. And it's kind of refreshing just to see how we can support each other and be less less competitive. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, what about consumer trends? Yeah, this, you know, I think about this a lot. I think we're probably trending a bit towards more, what's my, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, less, oh God, I, the words escape me, but I'd say less, less fluffy, less, um, I think the, the core product that a brand needs to launch with is something that's very practical. That's the word I'm looking for, right? <laughs> practical. Um, <laughs> and something that you can just really build off of, right? So having this one core product that just makes sense for, for most consumers. And then from there, you know, paying attention to what your customers are wanting and then and then building products that are a little more, um, I guess, a uh, little out there or, or risky and not and non-conforming. I don't know that the, I don't know that the industry's changed a whole lot in terms of types of products coming to market. I think, I think there's bigger problems surrounding some of these product launches, right? Like we have to make sure that our supply chains are intact. I think there's more things that could go wrong in that, but, but companies that are powering through it and coming to market, you know, have, are working through issues that are like going to make them really strong brands going forward. Yeah, we've noticed the Reviv does a uh, health, beauty, and wellness index, and we've seen the just the awareness and the interest level, but also the purchasing behavior of consumers and you know, everything from, you know, health, beauty, wellness, cosmetics, food and beverage, just more of a focused on healthy. Right. I don't know if it's healthy sounding or healthy, you know, like you said, is it is it an emotional thing? Is it a branding thing? But yeah. the interest level is there. So your 10% figure, you know, is it ever going to go to 50%? I mean, that's trillions of dollars around the globe. All these, if you add up all these markets, um, still right. at the mass market level there's a there's an issue you know scaling really good healthy products and yeah i don't think that's that's trending or i don't think it's a trend excuse me i think it's becoming more of the norm is going to really be a core part of offerings yeah. from most brands but i think 10 years ago when i started my business that wasn't necessarily the case it was still kind of unknown like is this just kind of a passing thing that you know right or someone right. Is, but i think it's pretty clear now i think COVID just sort of solidified that yeah, I mean, and I'm primarily looking, and that's global data. If you look at the U.S., I mean, the U.S. is funny. They'll mm-hmm. they'll say all types of things, and then a few years later, they're back to what they used to do. So we'll see, see yeah. what, the, what the real math there goes. Um, if you um, little advice for entrepreneurs here, you know, I run a program called Dancing with Startups, where we help companies figure out should I build it, should I buy it, should I borrow it, and partner, um, and specifically targeting startups around the globe, around whatever they want to you know do over the next few years. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so what advice can you share for entrepreneurs, basically, you know, basically partnering with the right investors and the right corporate partners, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, keep an open mind about 
who your customer is. I think that's just key when building. Uh, it's important to start with a niche and to really have a target that you know that that you're going after. But I think once you've established that, like really think big about you know who who might want to use your product and don't make assumptions about who your customer isn't. I think a lot of times we get caught up in this idea of like, well, that's that person doesn't want anything to do with my product, or I'm not really interested in in tapping that base. Like the real opportunity comes in. In, in reaching those little corners, those little pockets of, of customers that you didn't, you know, necessarily associate with your product. Yeah, I think you called them the uh, underestimated, uh, in consumer terms, the underserved, yeah, or, or not targeted. And um, and you know, you mentioned Clubhouse. What are some other ways for entrepreneurs? You know, kind of like still COVID going on to mm-hmm. kind of you know find new you know unique ways to network, connect, to, especially yeah. the early stage ones looking for a lot of funding. I think there's there's a nice opportunity in some of these marketplaces too, and um, oh. that's more connecting with your customer. But uh, companies like Pop Shop, I have to admit, I, I'm an investor in them, but it's just what they're doing is really incredible. So it's yeah. basically a live marketplace that enables founders and brands to interact in real time with their customers and to really just get on screen and, and talk about their product or their company and tell their story and answer questions in real time. So I think it's becoming increasingly important to you have those connections with your customers. Um, And then in terms of networking, you know, of course there's Twitter and other social media platforms that, you know, are not slowing down by any means. Awesome. Jimmy, I really want to thank you for being on the program. I, um, any parting advice for, uh, I usually ask, you know, what was your biggest challenge? You've laid out like 29 challenges here that you just (laughs) took on and beat down with a stick over the last 10 (laughs) years. Any parting advice for these, uh, either corporate types or uh, aspiring entrepreneurs coming together? I'd say just, you know, take things at your own pace. Don't get too caught up in the competition. I mean, know what's happening around you, but don't obsess over it and really stay focused on the vision that you have for your business. Um, There's no right way. There's no playbook. Um, Yeah, just, you know, kind of listen to your intuition and let that guide you too. You know, most entrepreneurs are very impatient. You know, they want growth fast and... um, doesn't always, you know, come at the pace that you want. So it's hard to be patient. What? Yeah. What's, uh, what's another thing for them to do? It is hard. To <laughs> no, it's true. I I'm think in, I'm impatient right now. All right. Well, here's 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 something that really helped me. I think you know, we're, being an entrepreneur is, is hard as hell, right? There's always something that's going to drag us down, and it's very easy to quit. Yes. Um, so just always remind yourself you know, why you started, and you lose that as you go, right? You get caught up in the day to day. We kind of forget like um, that what we're doing is is amazing and we're it's what what we wanted, right? Like, and so, you know, for me, it was always two things that brought me back um, to, you know, feeling inspired again. And one was this, um, the fact that like for the first time in my life, I was so happy with the work I was doing, right? Because I'd been on this soul searching journey for a long time to, to just be excited about my career. And then secondly, it was just, that the customers needed me and they wanted my product and I was changing lives. And sometimes it's just a matter of reading a customer testimonial and reminding yourself like, ah, what I'm doing is important. You know, so I'm going to keep powering through. Perfect. Thanks for a remarkable and inspiring story. Uh, you've been listening to Jamie Schmidt, the founder and former CEO of Schmidt's Naturals. This is Dean Tobias with the Reboot Chronicles. Hope to see you soon.